one of the early church fathers said it like this, our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. St. Augustine. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that that represents each of us tonight that our only fulfillment will only be found in Christ. That's a cliche, especially in the church. We preach about it. We sing about it. But do we really realize that our hearts are restless until we find rest in Him? We give mental assent to it. We even quote it in our creeds that Christ is the center of our life. Preachers preach every week around the world that Jesus is number one. We teach our children that we should obey God and His commandments. We teach children that they should accept Jesus in their hearts. We have it in our information pamphlets. We recite it in our creeds. We testify to one another that Jesus is number one. But oftentimes, I believe that we give mental assent to this doctrine that Jesus is number one, but yet, does our lives really reflect it? Does your pocketbook reflect it? Does your relationships reflect it? Does your attitude and behavior affect it, reflect it? We give mental assent to it, but is Jesus really number one? And if Jesus is number one, what is the implications of that? What does it mean that Jesus is number one for we cannot see Jesus? What does it mean to follow an invisible leader? Jesus isn't standing in front of us. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to give our life to him? Ladies and gentlemen, this message of Jesus being supreme, oh, there's been lots of battles over it. Christians have been pulled apart by wild animals because they believe that Jesus should be center and number one. People have been burned at the stake. They've been crucified upside down. People have given up their possessions and goods and went across the world because they believe that Jesus should be number one. Now, folks, maybe you can't go across the world. Maybe you can't do what those before you could have done or did. But what does it mean to us that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is number one? What do we mean by that language? Sometimes I believe that we're so churchy with language that we don't even know what we mean. I think that we say the same things over and over in church that we don't really know what we mean by what we mean, by what we say. What does it mean that Jesus is number one? What does it mean when we say the blood of the lamb, I plead the blood? What does that mean? What does it mean to be converted and be translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? What does that mean? What is the implications of that? Have you ever really stopped and pondered what we really mean by our Christian lingo? St. Augustine said our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee. You will remain restless until you find true rest in him. 
How do we have rest in Him? What does it mean to put Jesus number one? The Bible, I'm reminded of the Bible. Jesus tells a quick parable. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but I want you to see the principle in it. Jesus begins to tell a parable. We've all heard the parable before. But Jesus goes and tells us parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 3. And you'll get the idea of what Jesus is doing here. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 3, the Bible says he spoke many things in parables and said, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Then the Bible says in verse number 4, And he sowed some seed, and the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured it. Verse 5, Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, immediately sprang up because they had no depth of the earth. Then he goes on to verse 7, and some fell among thorns. You get the point, the parable. Jesus said a sower went out to sow some seed. And that same seed fell on soil. Some soil was thorny. Some soil was hard. Some soil was pliable. It received it. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus is likening himself to the sower. He said, I'm the sower. And I am sowing the word of God. I'm sowing the word. And your heart is the soil. But isn't it amazing in this this parable that every, every heart, which is the soil, they received the word. But some of them did not keep the word. See, the point of it, the point of the matter is, is we were designed to hear the words of God. Every ground in Matthew chapter 13 heard the word. They received the word, but most of them didn't keep the word. Jesus is trying to say here that you are designed as a believer to hear the word. But the question is, is do you keep the word? You were designed to hear it, but you were also designed to keep it. And how do you keep the word? How does the Word of God change your life? How do you keep the Word? How do you put Jesus number one and central in your life where the Word of God is effective in your life and it's just not a sermon that you hear on Sunday morning? You were designed to hear the Word. There are different levels where people are at when they hear the Word of God. Some people are at different levels. Number one, this is the first level that I think that people are at. People are at what we call the trust level. Trust. Number one, trust. And what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes when you share the word and you share the gospel, you've got to get people's trust. That could be through an act of kindness. Maybe you did something good for someone. You built trust with them. Maybe they don't know the Lord. You just sowed the seed. You sowed the seed. You opened the door. They started trusting. Number two, it goes from trust to curiosity. Curiosity. In other words, when people begin to trust you, they begin to become curious and they begin to ask questions. This method is found in the parables of Jesus. Jesus had a trust with the disciples because he was with them for three and a half years. The trust was there. And as a result of the trust, guess what happened? The disciples were curious. And all throughout the gospels, the disciples were always asking questions. Lord, what do you mean by this? 
And the Bible says, and the Lord would take them to a side and tell them the meaning of the parable because that's the curiosity level, the asking of questions. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says in 1 Peter that every one of you should give a reason to the hope that lies within you. You should have a curiosity about you. There is the trust level, the curiosity level where we begin to ask questions. And then there is the spiritual openness level, spiritual openness. You see, when people are curious and you got their trust, they're going to be spiritually open. Number three, they're going to be spiritually open. In other words, they are open to change. They are open for what you have to say. Not only do they trust you, not only are they asking questions, but now there is a spiritual openness about them. And not only is there a spiritual openness about people, but then it goes to the fourth level, and the fourth level is called the active spiritual seeking. In other words, they're just not open. They really want to know how to live this life. They're seeking truth. They want to know it. It's the active spiritual seeking level. The active spiritual seeking level. They want to be a part. How am I part of this? How can I get involved in your church? That's the active spiritual seeking level. And then the last level, and this is what I want you to see tonight. The last level is becoming an intentional disciple. Becoming an intentional disciple. That's the fifth level. And this fifth level is a level that most of us don't get to. I'm, I, I, you know, and I know, I'm not trying to bust anybody's bubble, but this level is a deep level that I wanted to explore in Scripture in just a moment. This is a level that some people don't ever get to. It's the intentional, become an intentional disciple. It's just not a name only, but it's something that has affected your thoughts and your behavior and your conduct. So let's look at the different levels of hearing the Word of God. Number one, it's the trust. You heard it, so you begin to open your heart and you begin to trust somebody. How can they hear without the preacher? There's a trust. You trust somebody. Number two, once trust is built, there's a curiosity. People begin to ask questions about your God. Then it goes to the spiritual openness. They begin to be open about change. And from openness, they begin to seek change. They begin to seek it, number four. And number five, these people become an intentional disciple. They are active. They are converted. They are living. Jesus is number one. Jesus has become central. It is not something they sing about or preach about or read on a creed. Jesus has actually consumed their life. Some Christians spend all their time at the active spiritual seeking level, number four. Pentecostals spend a lot of their time at number four. They're always spiritually seeking something. Some Pentecostals, go back to number four, some Pentecostals will seek after an experience. They'll seek after an experience. They'll run from one church to another church to get an experience. They're seeking a spiritual experience. There's certainly nothing wrong with a spiritual experience. But a spiritual experience only happens when we are a committed Christian to Christ. Those experiences are a byproduct of our relationship with Christ. It's not some signs and wonders follow them that believe. We don't follow signs and wonders. They follow them. Always seeking. I want to be a part. It's good to seek. But your seeking should be translated into growing. I've taken what I have learned and I have translated it into my life so that I can become a better Christian. We become the intentional 
disciple. You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, get this scripture, this is a powerful scripture. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 20, listen to the words of the gospel. Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They left their nets. The disciples left their nets. This is discipleship. This is what it means to become a Christian, that you leave things behind and you follow him. Being a Christian means that you follow Jesus' principles and you follow his commandments, whether you like it or not, whether it hurts or not. You follow him. You see, Jesus also said to Peter, remember what Jesus said to Peter? Jesus said to Peter, Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Is that what the Bible says? Everybody say that's what it says. Look at it. Matthew chapter 4. And the Bible says in verse 19, get this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Follow me, he said to Peter, and I will make you fishers of men. Now stop there. This scripture has a plethora of information in it. Number one, number one, you've got to follow me. Somebody say, follow me. Everybody say, follow me. And everybody say, that's the head. You can't follow Jesus unless you give mental assent to it. Everybody, please look up here. Let's pay attention. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. That's the head. Number two, I will make you. That's the heart. I will make you fishers of men. That's the hands. So being a disciple is head, follow me, I will make you, that's the heart, fishers of men, that's the hands. Being a Christian means head, heart, and hands. Follow me, give mental assent to my teachings. I will make you, I will give you a new heart, I will make you. That's the heart. You will become fishers of men, you will do it, that's the hands. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a Christian? Say it that verse, Matthew chapter 4, verse 20. He said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is using the analogy of a, a fisherman. Now back in the Jewish world, being a fisherman was a great occupation because it provided for your families. It was your livelihood. Jesus is saying, I want you to become a fisher of men. In other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to go fish out people out of the sea of the world. I want you to fish out people. What, what, what does a fish do? A fish aimlessly is in the sea. Aimlessly. That's all they do. Aimlessly. There is no direction to a fish. They're just aimlessly. Isn't that what people are doing in the world? Jesus is likened the people of the world like fish. And that's what the people of the world are doing. People of the world are just aimlessly in the sea of the world with no purpose. They're just wandering with no purpose. And Jesus is saying, I am calling you to go fish them out of the sea of the world and give them a purpose. What is the sea of the world? The sea of the world is humanism. The sea of the world is secularism. The sea of the world is, is my theology, what I want to do, how I want to live, the exaltation of self and self-gratification. 
And Jesus is saying, what I want you to do is I want you to fish them out of that. I want you to take them out of that. Take them out of that humanism. Take them out of that world. Take them out of that context. Take them out of that doctrine. Fish them out. They are wandering aimlessly in the sea, and you need to fish them out and bring them into the net. And the net represents the church and give them a purpose to live. Fish them out. Isn't that what we live? We live in a world where exaltation of self has become our God. Dennis F. Kinlaw, which was the president of Asbury University, he said this, and I quote, he said, Satan disguises submission to himself under the personal autonomy. He never asked us to become his servants. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want you to be my master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, it's self-interest now rules and what I want reigns. This is the essence of sin. The devil never came to Eve and said, worship me, become my master. Eve just became self-centered in what she wanted and thus that became sin. You see, that's what sin is, folks. It's the exaltation of yourself. It's the worship of yourself. It's making yourself a god. We would never worship idols. If I brought, a, brought an idol in here, you would never worship it. you think it was heresy. But we do worship our thoughts and our opinions. We worship our thoughts as if they are God. And it is a tension in our world to surrender our self-will under the mighty hand of God. That's, that's the issue of Jesus. Jesus said, not my will, but thine will be done. That is a contrast to Lucifer who walked up and down the garden of God and his attitude was, I will exalt myself to the throne of God. Jesus debunked it and in the garden said, Thy will be done. If we're not careful, we can be idol worshipers of our own selves. What, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means crucifying our self-interest. It means relinquishing our will. It means abandoning ourself. It means that we come to the end of ourself and we realize it's Christ in Christ alone in us and not necessarily our will. We, when we have come to the altar and when we have surrendered ourselves, we have relinquished the right to be right. It is the right to be righteous. You are now a slave to righteousness. You are not a slave to your thoughts. You are not a slave to what you want. You're not a slave to your preferences. You're not a slave to your pity party. You're not a slave to what you want anymore. Once you come to Jesus, you are now a slave to him. He is your master, not your thoughts, not your will, not your self-interest. You are a slave under the mighty hand of the master. 
And the moment that we exalt ourselves and think that we can do what we want to do, then you are falling into the great sin of idolatry. It's, it's not about, I have a right to do this. They did me wrong, so I'm going to pay them back. You have relinquished the right to do that. It is called the right of righteousness. That's why Jesus said, if they do you wrong, turn to the other cheek. How can I do that? Because you don't have a right anymore. It's righteousness. How can I? Jesus said, if they ask you to go two mile, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. Why? Jesus says, you don't have a right any longer. It's righteousness. Righteousness requires you to go the extra mile. Righteousness requires you to lay down yourself. You see, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he went up the road called the Via Della Rosa. You know what the Via Della Rosa is? It's a long path where when the Romans crucified somebody, they would carry the cross beam. And when they carried the cross beam, they went up the Via Della Rosa. I've walked the Via Della Rosa. It's a, it's a curvy path that leads up to a hill called Mount Calvary. And so when Jesus was walking up the Via Della Rosa, it was called the one-way journey. The Via Della Rosa is also called the one-way journey. Why was it called the one-way journey? Because when they had the cross beam on their shoulders, they were not allowed to turn around and go back. Once you were sentenced to die, you couldn't change your mind. You had no rights. You had to follow the government. You had to obey the Romans, and you were sentenced to death. So therefore, it was a one-way journey. Isn't that amazing that Jesus said, if you're going to be my followers, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. That means I can't go back. There's nothing to go back back to. I can't backslide. I am going all the way to the very end. Somebody wave your hand and say, preach on a little bit. You've got to go all the way to the very end. It's a one-way journey. It's a one-way journey of moving forward. It's a one-way journey of going all the way. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm not going to say it's not worth it. When I picked up the cross beam, I picked up the cross beam to finish this journey. He went all the way. Jesus said, I'm going to make you a fisherman of men. I am going to make you my disciple. And the very first thing that Jesus says to them, the Bible says in verse 1, he says, I want you to be my disciple. My fisher of men, I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That's verse 19, verse 20. Guess what happens? Matthew 4, verse 20. The very first thing that Peter does and his companions, they left their nets. Why their nets? Because they were a fisherman and your net was your livelihood. If you didn't have a net, you couldn't fish. In other words, it was their financial security. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, when you serve Jesus, that means your nets belong to Him. Your resources belong to Him. When you serve Jesus, everything belongs to Him. They left their nets. They left it. They left their financial security. I hear pastors all the time say, boy, I'd go pastor that church if they would pay me more. Oh, my brothers and sisters, you ain't a disciple because if you're a disciple, you should be able to leave your net Leave the financial security and trust me. 
I'll trust you, Lord, if it's a certain amount. I'll trust you if they give me this pay package. When do we get to dictate what the package is in serving God? Will he provide for you? Oh, yes, he will. He'll blow your mind if you just trust him. But you see how this is hard for some folks? Jesus said, I want you to follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I'll tell you what it means. Let go of your net. Let go of your security. Let it go. Follow me. Then the Bible says, verse number 21, going out from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, in the boat, Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. And I'm about to shout here, verse 22, and immediately they left the boat. Did you see that? And they left the father. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? You've got to let go of the nets. Number two, you've got to leave the boat. What is the boat? The boat is the autonomy of ourselves. It's our self-government. It's our security. The nets represent our financial security. But the boat represents autonomy. It means it's something that you can control. They controlled the boat. They steered the boat in the winds and the waves. They had control over the boat. Sometimes following Jesus means I've got to give up my security. I've got to give up the nets. And I've got to give up what I control. I've got to give up the boats of my life. The things that I like to control, I've got to give it up. Then not only did they give up the net, not only did they give up the boat, but they gave up their father. Oh, this is hard preaching, but it's the truth. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to follow Jesus whether family likes it or not. They left the father. Jesus requires total allegiance. Jesus said, if you don't love me more than you love your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children, you cannot and you will not be my disciple. Jesus has to be number one. That doesn't mean we don't love people or care for people, have deep relationships. That's true. We have deep relationships. We love people. We honor people. But they're not our God and they're not our master. Jesus is our master. He is our God and total allegiance goes to him alone. You see, following Jesus means that we give up the nets, folks. We give up the boat and we give up family allegiance. They immediately... Isn't it ironic that they didn't have delayed obedience? Delayed obedience is not obedience. They quickly, immediately left their nets, they left their boat, and they left their family ties. Why? Why was this important? Because in the Jewish world, a grown man was expected to carry on the name of his father. So Peter was expected to carry on the name of his father. And you know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, Peter, if you love me, don't be concerned about carrying on the name of your biological father. If you love me, I want you to preach the gospel and I want you to be a fisher of men and I want you to carry my name throughout the world. 
Don't be concerned about carrying on a biological name. My name is more important than a family tie. Oh, this, this level of commitment, this level of, uh, uh, of radical obedience is shunned by the church. It's looked at as you're a fanatic. It's looked at it as you're, you're over the top. It's looked at as you've lost your mind. But isn't that what they called Jesus? They called him the devil. They called him crazy. But you see, history books are only written about people who have sold themselves out. History books are not written about losers who did nothing. History books are written about people who had a deep commitment to do what was not popular among society. And it was not popular for a grown man to leave their nets in their boat and to follow another man who they did not even know. That wasn't popular. That was, that was almost ignorant to do such a thing. But they loved Jesus so much that their commitment to him required three things. I'm leaving my nets behind. I'm leaving my boat behind. I'm leaving my family tie behind. Now folks, is the Lord calling you to do this? No, because you don't have a net and you don't have a boat. And if you're a woman, you're not concerned about carrying on a particular name. So in principle, some of this doesn't apply or some of these things don't apply, but you understand the principle behind these things. Jesus is not asking you to go leave and Go across the world tonight. Jesus is not asking you to uproot your family and go to Africa. That's not what I'm saying at all. But Jesus is requiring you to do self-evaluation of your life and to make sure that yourself doesn't become a God, that your opinions don't become a God and your thoughts don't become a God and your self-gratification don't become a God, that Jesus becomes center number one in every decision of your life. Jesus is number one. Jesus is number one. An old preacher years ago told of a story how he was in a foreign country, Africa, or excuse me, India. Preacher got up and said, old preacher, he was telling stories about how he was a missionary in India and how there was 33 million gods and those people in India worshipped these gods and some of them were blind because they would get up early in the morning and make sacrifices to their God. And one of their gods was the sun god. And some of those people were blinded because they would stare at the sun for hours offering incense to their gods. Some of them would perform acts, ritual acts upon their bodies, would mutilate their bodies because they thought that they could honor and appease their gods. But this preacher who was a missionary for many years in India said one day he went out on the front porch to pray. And as he was out on the front porch to pray, he noticed that some of those people went out to the river. They didn't have running water like you and I, so they would go out in the river and wash their clothes and do some things. And, and some of them worshipped the river as their gods because everything was a god. And one morning he was looking and saw this fairly young mother come with she had twins. She was breastfeeding them on her breast. 
She, he noticed that as she went out into the depths of the water and the waves were crashing, she took one of those babies and she threw it as far as she could in the depths of the sea. And she stood there for a while. The preacher scratched his head and like, what have I got myself into? Did I just see this woman throw her baby into the sea? He rushed down to where all these people were gathered, and he went to the woman, and he said, ma'am, can I ask you, why did you throw your child into the depths of the sea? He noticed as he looked at her, she had a, a baby that was mangled, deformed, that was sucking at her breast. And he was so perplexed, the woman said, you see, sir, I worship the God of the waters and the seas. So I've come this morning to give my healthy baby, my healthy baby as an offering to my gods. So I gave it to the sea god and I kept the mangled baby. Creature turned around walked slowly back to his room. And there he discovered, that's what it means to be a Christian. I give God my best. I don't give Him the mangled offering. I don't give Him the leftovers. I don't give Him if I have time for Him. I don't give Him if I have it or not, I give God the best. Ladies and gentlemen, how much more should we give God our very best? How much more should we surrender our net and surrender our boats and surrender our allegiance to people? How many of us know that we serve the true and living and almighty God who is not dead but very much alive and He deserves our very best? What about it, folks? This book was written because ordinary men and women like you and I decided that they believed Jesus. They believed it so much that people wrote about their stories. They wrote about stories of how men and women gave their very best. They gave their nets they gave their boats. They surrendered their family allegiance. And they followed Him. Put that quote up there in closing. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. Instead of His will, it's self-interest now rules and what I want reigns. For this is the essence of sin. 
This is the essence of sin. Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord, I love you. Then feed my lambs. The Lord said a third time, Peter, do you love me? He said, of course, Lord, you know I love you. Why three times? Because Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your mind and all of your heart and all of your strength. Peter, I've got to ask you three times, do you love me with all your heart and your mind and your strength? Can I love God with my mind? Can I study the Bible and yet my heart be far from him? Yes. Can I love God with all my heart and my mind never listens to the sermon? My mind is so disengaged I don't read the Bible? Yes. Can I love God with my mind and my heart and never serve? Yes. Can I serve like Mother Teresa and feed the poor and bring justice to the widows and my heart be far from him? Yes. Because that is the tension of Christianity. The tension of Christianity is not to get unity in here. The tension of Christianity is to get unity in me where my mind, my will, and my body is all saying the same thing. My heart is submitting, but my mind isn't submitting. My hands wants to submit, but my mind doesn't want to submit. My heart is worshiping God, but my mind don't want to submit. It's the tension every week of our lives. Mind, heart, and hands. They're just wrestling with one another. And this great Christian life teaches us that we've got to pick up the cross and we better get all three of them under control. This is the greatest commandment. That you would love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That's why John Wesley the great revivalist of the 18th century, said, this is what I call perfect love. Perfect love. What does it mean to love God perfectly? I love Him with all my mind. I love Him with all my heart. I love Him with my hands. That's perfect love. And then the writer said, perfect love will cast out fear. Why does it cast out fear? Because I'm unified. My mind, my heart, my hands, it's, it all says the same thing. I'm whole. That's the word for integrity, wholeness. I'm complete. That's why the writer said, I pray that your body, soul, and spirit be sanctified. There's always a wrestling between this. I, I, I listen to you. I give them into a sin, but my heart wants to do something else. My body wants to sin. My, my hands don't want to submit. What does it mean to have a move of God? How? Why is it? Why is it that 
it seems like some people are so anointed and God does exploits through them and the power of God is strong upon their life. I, I think, I think, I think I know why. I think because those people have learned how to have total submission in their head, their heart, and their hands, and they live like it. It's, 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 it's not just a, a head. It's what I think. It's my heart, my motives, my affections, my feelings. My hands, my strength, what I do, my behavior. What is carnal Christians? Well, they read the Bible, but their hands, their behavior don't reflect it. So therefore, there's a disunity between head, heart, and hands. So therefore, it equals carnality to everyone else. Because you say you love God and you read the Bible, but yet your behavior don't reflect it, so therefore you're fleshly. What is spiritual people? Spiritual people are not people who just speak in tongues and fall on the floor and buck around and come to church. Spiritual people are submitted people. Consecrated people. Dedicated people. Hallelujah. Because I want to tell you something as I close. You'll never get to the cross the cross is the place of public exaltation. You'll never be exalted in life unless you go by the way of the garden first. The garden is the place where the battle was won, folks. Not my will, but thine be done. It was in the garden that his will was submitted to the will of the Father. And when there is total submission, there will be exaltation. We want to get to exaltation before we go by the garden. We want to bypass the garden. We don't have a garden up there, but yet the garden is an important part of the story. The cross is lifted for the world to see, but the garden was a place of battle. The cross is exalted, but there was a battle in the garden. The ministry is the cross. Everybody can see it. But the battle happens in the garden of our heart. And in the garden of your heart, you can't find people to stay with you. It's in the garden of the heart that few people will pray with you. It's in the garden of the heart that people won't go with you all the way. Oh, 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 they'll be at the cross. They'll be at the resurrection. But at those times of your life that you feel like your heart is being ripped out of your chest, very few people show up. But it is in those places of your life the greatest battle is won. Hallelujah.